and this is Environment in Context, a podcast produced by the editors of the Jadalia Environment page. Today, we will be speaking with Rawan Maki, an environmental engineer, fashion designer, and PhD candidate in design for sustainability at the London College of Fashion. We will be speaking with her about her work, which explores the social, material, and behavioral transitions required to move towards design for sustainability in the Arab world. Through the case study of Bahrain, she investigates a non-Western approach to design for sustainability and considers the Gulf region as both a post-colonial and neo-colonial space. Her doctoral research includes a Delphi study and qualitative interviews with social activists, consultants, designers, craft communities, civil servants, and consumers. Welcome, Rawan, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much, Huma, for that introduction and for having me today. I'm excited to be here. So, Rowan, I want to begin with you. You have this complex and fascinating set of interests and identities. You're an environmental engineer, a fashion designer, and a PhD candidate. Your work interrogates these relationships between the fashion industry and its past, present, and speculative future practices of sustainability. I'm just fascinated by kind of your overall profiles. So I was wondering if you could tell me and our listeners a bit about your life. Where did you grow up? What is your professional and academic journey? And how does your craft as a fashion designer relate to your intellectual work? Thank you, Huma. I think that sounds like a great place to start. And, you know, I think it's really important as well to kind of place somebody and their research into place somebody's research into the bigger context of who they are as well. And, you know, for me, I, I grew up in Bahrain. My family continues to live there. And I would say My parents were from the social mobility era of the 80s in Bahrain. They both studied in Cairo, which is where they met. And for me growing up, they both longed work hours. And so my grandparents had a very direct impact in raising my sisters and me. So this is important to me because I think being raised by older people impacted me greatly and also gave me an understanding of family and community, social support nets, and and even environment, frankly, as very formative parts of society. And so after, you know, 17 years in Bahrain, I I went to to study in the U.S. for my undergraduate studies. I majored there in environmental engineering and economics. And then I completed a master's in London in environmental engineering. After that, I actually worked in strategy management for three years, uh, which is something that a lot of people don't know about me. I I initially joined in the hopes of solving environmental problems for companies in the Arab region. And then I left three years in. I honestly just wanted to make art and I wanted to work in sustainability. And so that was a bit of a, a big drastic change for me. Um, and it was a huge kind of entryway into the arts. It was a bit of a, I think of it as this creative explosion that then was followed by a more, I would say, an intellectual you know, second explosion really, but it really started as a creative pursuit. And it really, a lot of my research comes out and is very informed by practice. Um, so this was this was back in 2016. I enrolled myself in fashion classes at the London College of Fashion. And I spent a year studying fashion there. And I really made myself a curriculum out of short courses and sketching and designing and making things. And eventually I made my first collection, which I launched in 2017. And at the same time, I was looking at research programs in fashion and sustainability. 
I applied to do my PhD in fashion sustainability at that same university, which is, it's the Center for Sustainable Fashion, a department within the London College of Fashion. And for two years, I balanced my making, my brand and the PhD program. Those were super invigorating years, very exciting. I loved designing and I loved marrying the theoretical frameworks that I was also exploring uh, with that element of, you know, design and practice. And in 2019, I actually, you know, not too long ago, I decided to pause production of new pieces in my brand to focus on my PhD. I still made things as one-offs and I still design in my sketchbook. And for me, I was really grappling with a lot of that was emerging from my PhD. I really wanted to focus on the theoretical paradigms coming out of it. And the practice side of me kind of said, okay, let's pause for a second. Oh, thank you so much for kind of opening up your life and, you know, your, not only your journey, but actually some of your struggles uh, to us. I think what you've shared with us really resonates with what I've heard from a lot of my friends who are artists in Lebanon, um, in Tunisia and other places who are always struggling with this battle between making and uh, theorizing. Now that, you know, we've learned a bit more about your life, I was wondering if we could move the conversation and actually talk about the life cycle of the clothing that we wear every day. Based yeah. on your research, can you perhaps select an article of clothing and tell us about its journey, its geographies, where the crops necessary for its fabric are grown, the petroleum necessary for synthetic composites are extracted, the individuals who farm, weave, and sew these clothes, its shipping routes, distribution networks, tailoring and purchasing. I know that's yeah. that's a lot I just said, <laughs> but, yeah. but I'm confident um, because I know yeah. that really this is your life. This is what you think about <laughs> that you'll be able yeah. to help us understand better. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And, and you're right, it is a lot. And I think you know, I think this is the thing is that often when we think of fashion sustainability, a lot of times we think about consumer behavior or the final product, but really we're talking about any sort of product life cycle here. Um, so I, you know, I'll, I'll walk us through the phases of the fashion life cycle and the products that I will keep sort of for us to focus on, and maybe we'll think of two products because I really want to highlight as well the differences between cotton and organic materials, and as well, synthetic materials that are petroleum derived, as you very, very aptly pointed out. So, you know, say you walk into a mall somewhere in Bahrain or Dubai, and you see a cotton t-shirt hanging there. And on another rack, there is a synthetic shirt made of polyester, or maybe a blend of polyester and cotton. So I'm going to start now from the very first phase of that fashion life cycle. And so if we can imagine a life cycle wheel here, we start at the source, which is that first stage where raw materials for textiles are farmed in the case of a material like cotton, or as you mentioned, you know, materials that are derived from petroleum, that will be their raw material state. So again, many people don't realize it, but a majority of our clothing these days are actually made from these synthetic fibers. It is, a, it is a bigger proportion than that which is made from agricultural products such as cotton. So these fibers are also the same fibers that we keep hearing about causing microfiber pollution. And this has become a huge issue that I'm sure many listeners would have heard around in the news or maybe even know about more deeply. And so these microfibers end up in our oceans and quite literally even in our bodies eventually. So 
we are very much ingesting petroleum-derived microfibers. Um, so this is one of the main issues, I would say, of the actual source stage is that these different fabric or fiber profiles actually have impacts down the line. So the leading cotton producing countries of the world are, um, the biggest one is India, followed by China, followed by the United States. And then you also have Brazil, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkey, which also have significant cotton production. As for synthetic fibers, these are mostly produced in China. They form a bigger proportion of the entire fiber, you know, making or production, um, more so than organic materials such as cotton or linens. And other than China, also you have um, Korea is a big producer of synthetic fibers, as well as some other Asian countries. You also have some of that production happening in the USA, India, and some European countries here and there. A lot of European Scandinavian countries are doing some very interesting, innovative things with synthetic production. But at the end of the day, it remains to also be a petroleum derived product. And also it's in a very low recycling rate. So currently of the polyester, of all these polyester shirts that we see in, in our malls, on our racks, only 1% of that comes from recycled sources. Everything else comes from virgin. So 99% of that comes from virgin raw material, which is petrochemicals. Um, so that's still a very low recycling rate. That's for the first stage, which is source. And then we move to the making stage. And now this stage is extremely important. And one of the, one of the most important things about the stage is that a lot of people tend to over automate the stage in their minds. So clothing is still very much made by human hands. And this is kind of a basic piece of information that sometimes when it's shared, people are a bit surprised because they believe that we live in a day and age where so much is still done by machines. But this stage specifically is extremely, it's a craft, it's labor. Um, and the issues here are related to labor, to low wages and to a lack of worker safety. And the countries where most of our clothes are made, um, and this, these are clothes that we purchase from the high street, most of these are made in Bangladesh, India, China, Vietnam, and then as well, you have Ethiopia, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and the Philippines. These, are, these countries are major you know, exporters of that labor. And I say labor because as many people might be familiar as well, is that a lot of these labor, laborers or workers or fashion makers are really working for companies that are overseas, that are big corporations. And so this is the make stage and the some of the issues associated with it. Now, moving you know, across the wheel or around the wheel, we next have the use stage. So this is the stage where we wear our clothes. So this is the consumer-centric stage. And my research actually expands a lot on the stage, thinking of the ways in which culturally you can have different definitions of use. And therefore, that can inform different definitions of sustainability. And so often the Western model is exported globally and at times limited of how we think of use. And what do I mean by that? Um, so let's take the example of tailoring in a place like Bahrain or in a place like the Gulf or also in many parts of Asia. I argue that for the example of tailoring, the make and the use stage are actually conflated in the process of tailoring from my point of view as a consumer. Because say I have a cultural event or a wedding or 
something that I'm getting a garment fitted for down the line, I'm actually engaging with this product way before I have actually purchased it, possibly even way before I approach the tailor. I'm doing research. I'm thinking about what it's going to look like. Um, eventually, I will approach the tailor and we will engage in a process that can vary from actual co-creation or maybe I'll let them lead the way. But there's all these interactions that happen, happen along the way that I derive utility from. So I argue that it is important to think about expanding that use stage from just buying a product and wearing it because that can really open doors, you know, in terms of thinking of societies that operate differently from the maker to the wearer, you know, paradigm. A lot of these things can be mixed. And I'm not just talking here about co-design per se, because that does exist in other, you know, design disciplines. It exists in obviously in, in, in Western literature and in a lot of Eurocentric thinking, but I'm really talking about thinking of expanding our definitions of use when it comes to products, especially clothing and what that can mean. And so then we move to the stage that is called the lasting stage. So here, sustainability in fashion becomes all about what we can do to extend the lifetime and the durability of the garment. Working on lasting from a sustainability point of view can be a materials issue, but it can also be a cultural issue or a systems issue. Now, to go back to our examples, for example, in the Arab world, in the Gulf in particular, donation culture is a huge part of this lasting culture. But a lot of times people have the idea that if I'm donating my clothing, then I'm doing the correct thing at the end of life and I, I'm no longer contributing to waste. Now, donation culture is great, but also at times people overly rely on this idea and this heightened donation culture doesn't really solve the problem of textile waste because a very big proportion of clothing that doesn't find a match actually just ends up in landfill. Here we discuss this example of donation, which is really, it's an example of reuse and reuse is part of lasting. It's part of making things last for longer, whether it's you yourself that's reusing a garment or whether it is given to somebody else through donation or through sharing for them to reuse. And so again, when we talk about sharing, here you have this terminology of sharing economy that is very much used in the Western context, but in the Gulf instead you know, of this organized market or of rent the runway of all of these really kind of marketable ideas, you actually see this practice prevalent between family members, between even extended family. Um, and this, this differs in the sense that you, you could say that it's not organized, but it is also, it is there without it being a pioneering business idea. It just exists as a facet of the status quo. And I think this is really important because a lot of times when we talk about sustainability in fashion, you hear about innovations and these innovations sometimes are just things that are already happening in different societies around the world. And then of course, you know, as we exit the lasting stage, if the garment has you know, it has no option of being reused, it's not going to be donated, you either have the reality of disposal or recycling. In the Gulf, textile waste goes to landfill, it is not recycled yet. And in Bahrain, it is between four to 7% of household waste. And this really depends on the household income bracket. Usually households of a lower income tend to have less textile waste. Um, and this actually is a, this is a similar finding really globally. This is not a unique aspect um, just to Bahrain. Yeah, so that, that is the view of the entire, I would say, fashion life cycle and of the different stages. You know, one of the important things to kind of think about here is 
that it touches really a lot of different communities and people throughout the life cycle. And so it's really important to not be constrained in that consumer stage. But as I, as I mentioned, it is also important to see how that consumer experience and those really those patterns of society, you know, I feel it's more important than using the word consumer is really these are ways in which a society operates at the use stage can also differ. I think, you know, the idea that is popping into my head, which I think most of our listeners are familiar with, the, the word that we always use thrown around uh, when describing this kind of contemporary fashion life cycle is the term fast fashion. I know that I can't walk around a metropolitan city center in the world without encountering an H&M or Zara store. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, I, I've also, you know, heard this term slow fashion. And I'm curious about what your thoughts are. And, you know, before I get your thoughts, I'm going to read uh, an excerpt from Kate Fletcher's article on slow fashion, where she talks about the social and environmental costs of fast fashion. She writes, quote, in fashion, like other sectors, the cost implications of the growth model are felt mainly externally to the corporation enjoying the benefits by society at large by workers and the environment. Costs are experienced as increased pollution, resource depletion, and climate change costs due to the ever greater throughput of physical products necessary to continually grow a business. They are borne by clothing workers' poverty wages and reflected in temporary employment contracts and unpaid overtime as their employers are squeezed on price and order times by large retailers and global brands wielding their economic power and economies of scale. They are felt as a lack of choice and variety of garments on the high street as low-cost, big-box retailers create a dynamic that prioritizes cheapness, mass availability, and volume purchasing above all else, and that forces smaller producers who cannot compete on price alone out of business, end quote. Now that we've heard her words, and I think you already started to describe these dynamics of fast fashion for us as you were talking about the fashion life cycle, but I'd like to hear what you think about these terms. And do you think that setting up a binary opposition between fast versus slow is really a productive way to think about the systemic change necessary for more sustainable futures? That's a great quote and a great question. And I think it's this whole idea that the faster system prioritizes cheapness, mass availability, volume purchasing, but it also crowds out the ability of businesses that don't conform to that and can't really scale up or reach a mass sort of consumer market. It really crowds them out. I think these definitions are important, but you are correct that it is painted as a binary often. And, and perhaps a problem with using terms that denote speed in this day and age is that many tend to unknowingly overstate the role, the role of automation, as I mentioned earlier, or machines or anything truly fast when it comes to the making of fashion. Again, really low-wage labor, often in dire and unpredictable and unsafe conditions, working to make this clothing. But I believe the term originates from how fast the seasons are within these two systems painted as binary. So you have this whole idea that H&M, for example, has 52 seasons in the year because they would like to show something new every week. So, you know, but in reality, 
there is a spectrum. And in reality, there are problems in the clothing value chain that even luxury brands, which you know, don't fall into fast fashion as a category, obviously, but they also face. You can have problems related to fashion sustainability as a luxury fashion brand, even though you're not a fast producer churning out 52 seasons a year, but you can still have sustainability related issues, whether they're ethical or environmental, for example, related to leather making and tanneries, leftover stock talk, and really the fact that you have leftover stock. So, so yes, you're correct in that these two binaries do not reflect all that is in the fashion system. I think a really interesting and useful paradigm to think about fashion sustainability is really the philosophical or political spectrum of sustainability itself. And this is the one that I really use to guide my own research and understanding. And so here we depart from describing the pattern or speed of how clothing gets onto the shelves to a spectrum of what sustainability really means in quite a political way. The spectrum includes different definitions of sustainability, and you can think of them as political parties, so to speak, but within the sustainability movement. And so on one end of the spectrum, or one political party, is the light green sustainability thinkers. And this kind of discourse calls for individual action. It centers on calls like green is the new black, green is now trendy, you know, go ahead and go shop for green. And, you know, it's all about your choices and what you can do, how you can buy better, how you can vote with your money. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have dark green sustainability thinking. And now this discourse is all about collective action. It's about systems change, which the slow fashion movement really is. And their sustainability is not only for those privileged enough to act on these green choices, but it's really about changing the system so that there isn't so much weight on the consumer choice itself. You are listening to the Environment in Context series on Status al This is Huma Gupta. My guest today is Rawan Maki, and we are speaking about fashion and sustainability. So for the second part of this interview, I was wondering if we can kind of speak about our experiences and ground this conversation in the Gulf. I grew up also in the Gulf, in the UAE to be specific, and I remember growing up how much of an emphasis was placed on fashion as a symbol of status and wealth. Perhaps you can relate from your experiences growing up in Bahrain. Today, however, with the proliferation of exclusive luxury brands that boast sustainable materials and practices, it seems that the consumption of sustainable fashion is itself becoming an exclusive signifier of wealth and status. As a fashion designer who is committed to sustainability, how do you grapple with these dynamics that make sustainable fashion unaffordable and the ways in which luxury brands and large corporations use sustainability to greenwash their practices? Yeah, I, I think this is an immensely, immensely important question. You know, having sustainability turn into a coveted trend that reinforces classist dynamics is particularly likely in an industry like fashion. And as you said, it is already being co-opted through greenwashing. And of course, corporations will try to latch on to the trends of the season to be marketable. And if that trend happens to be sustainability, then that will be marketed as well. And so in, in my own work, I mentioned earlier that I struggled between theory and practice. And this question of 
how transformative can fashion or art really be towards sustainability? And here I'm defining fashion in my specific context as a brand. There's nothing inherently capitalistic about art or about making it or the practice of creation, whether it's clothing or furniture or sculpture. It, it really is the systems in which this creation happens that tend to have this inequity. And so ultimately, this is why I think developing this non-Western definition of sustainability is important, not only in fashion, but in all industries. And this isn't to say that we can't have global standards on what sustainability means. And this isn't what I am referring to when I keep saying non-Western. But to quote Vivak, you know, she implores you when you hear the term sustainability to ask to sustain what? And so... This is a really important question that, you know, we should be posing in the Gulf in Bahrain, especially in the Gulf, where an imported fast fashion line that now offers a sustainable range may be seen as the more sustainable option over local manufacture, local making and local livelihood. So, again, I think the value of saying Western and non-Western here is not to create a binary in that they are totally different, especially in fashion where these lines of mimicry and originality are already very, very blurred and confounded. So the question really here in this Spivakian sense is that the Gulf consumer has been subjected to be the receiver. And in Spivak's terms, on one end of the permeability of ideas, which extends to trends, creation, and ultimately a long-standing cultural capital. And so just to keep in mind that this instinct to participate in sustainable fashion in the Gulf many times may make individuals inclined to once more buy into a Western product or to join a global fashion trend of sustainability uh, just because it is. Again, it is important to have global standards, but it's important to understand the nuance as well locally of what sustainability from the ground up can really mean. Thank you so much. I, you know, I think that question you just posed um, using Spivak's thinking on sustainability, that question to sustain what really kind of cuts at the heart of this issue. While we we're speaking about contemporary trends, I'm curious in your interviews, what kinds of stories have you come across about earlier approaches to clothes making? How do your subjects narrate these changes and how do these changes affect their personal life, their bodies, their emotional attachments and livelihoods? I guess I'm just looking for some embodiment of these large systems that we're discussing. You know, what, what happens at the human scale? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very wonderful question. And it really cuts to the heart of a lot of my work and research, which is with these narratives of fashion making in Bahrain over time. And also, I really do think it builds on this idea that definitions of sustainability should emerge from cultures within themselves. And Vivak, you know, she says, the desire to transgress by universalizing can be halted if one always keeps in mind the trace of the text, or in our case, textile. And so it's important to see what the local context is, even in this globalized system. For example, I'll, I'll give a few anecdotes here of some of the things that have been the most fulfilling 
in my research, but also some of the biggest things that I, I found in terms of these narratives. And when you look at Bahrain today, it, these might not be things that are obvious. They might not be obviously contained within the present that you see. Textile making, which once served even neighboring Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries, has actually dwindled to one textile workshop in Bahrain in a village called Beni Jamra. And the local sociopolitics around this are also fascinating. Textile making has been made into heritage really as a national craft, although it took some time for weaving and textile making to become this heritage item compared to some other heritageized or heritage you know, initiatives. And this is largely due to the fact that a lot of this craft's history and a lot of weavers belong to a local group that is not necessarily socio-politically empowered. And, you know, an another anecdote that I that I sort of really love, and I, I personally enjoyed this because it's very close to home, is these narratives from older women um, on what fashion and what making was like previously and what it is now. Um, for example, I had the wonderful pleasure of interviewing both of my grandmothers to hear their stories of making clothing as young women. And so my paternal grandmother, she sewed to make clothes and to sell them as a single mother to support her child. You know, she still has her, this 27 series Singer sewing machine which she uses still up until this day. Um, you know, they made these from the 1880s to the 1960s and they were discontinued in the 1960s, um, but no, they're no longer available, but they were made to last forever from steel and cast iron. And till this day, people that own them can use them to make clothing. And I, I find this very symbolic as well, now going to fast fashion today and slow fashion and, and the difference even in the machinery that is used to make clothing. I just find that fascinating. My maternal grandmother, she was another story. She had a supportive husband. She was supported by him financially, but she wanted to learn tailoring as a craft and as a housewife. And Singer, once more makes an appearance here, had local trainings in Bahrain on how to use these machines. Um, so this was part of their campaign to sell Singer machines globally. So she signed up more so to explore this as a craft. And she then made her own children clothing, but still preferred to buy her children ready-made garments because that is what was considered more luxurious, more expensive, and more in fashion. And in this example, I, of course, I absolutely adored interviewing both of my grandmothers. But it is very interesting to see that in the same generation, you see the difference between tailoring and making as labor for money and as tailoring as an elective craft. And of course, these are not binaries, but they highlight this element of labor and making and clothing that is still very much an issue today. And, you know, there, there are many more narratives from, you know, my research, from different people that I've interviewed. There's interesting things that have come up on sharing patterns, on mall culture, on Instagram culture today, on the tailoring process, you know, these different visitations that we, I, I had mentioned earlier, you know, they're called brovas and, and you go for them and you may develop a relationship with your tailor over time. It may be a group activity. These relationships that are really created um, through the local practice, uh, you know, of fashion and making, these cultural events that are part of it all. And when I say culture events, people's mind immediately go to weddings and, you know, to religious or religious 
cultural events, but going to the mall and walking around is also a cultural event in the Gulf. It is, um, it is akin to walking in the park in you know, many European cities. It is what people do for their daily stroll. Um, and so these stories are really endless. You know, there are even stories about washing. And, and maybe this is the last one I'll share because it has a good contrast between this historical practice of washing and between washing today in a place like Bahrain. So this was through the interview with my grandmother. She explained to me that back in her day um, as a girl, wash day used to be this entire trip to the natural springs of Bahrain on foot. So usually groups of women and sometimes young boys would leave as a group from the village that they lived in or sometimes from really what was considered the urban centers back then as well. And they would walk all together, um, often for very, very long times and often in the sun, to go wash the household garments in the springs. Um, th these are natural springs in Bahrain um, that right now have dwindled very much so, and that, that's a whole other environmental issue. But once they've done washing them and they're done washing them in the springs, they would put them up on the palm trees that were surrounding the springs to dry for hours. And now in these hours, while these sheets and clothes are drying, they spend the whole day there in the farm around the springs. It's a social activity. Um, often children are playing. Often, you know, women are catching up on news, on different family news. It's, it's really this exchange center of social interactions, exchanging information. And it was really the domain of women back then as well. And so she described this walk to me in detail. And at times she's a little girl and, and she'd be seeing a friend that she hadn't seen in a very long time. And, and you'd have sometimes children from different families as the crowd is passing through the neighborhood just hop on to, to join in on this walk to get to get things washed for for washing day so it was quite a day excursion you know now we contrast that with today and a lot of washing today is done in households through washing machines and I think by looking at these narratives really stories about the past and present that kind of nuance can emerge Wow, thank you for sharing all those stories. I mean, as you were talking about narratives that your grandmother has shared with you, uh, stories of your family, it made me think of stories from my own family and uh, the way that, you know, my grandma raised my mother and her sisters. And something that, you know, we haven't spoken about in this conversation is that, yes, there's the life cycle of the, the article of clothing itself, but there's also the life cycle of the body. And something I think I took for granted as a child was how my mother's family used to buy and tailor fabric and, and clothing with the um, assumption that the body would change. So for instance, in the seam of a salar kameez, you know, let's say the, of the shirt, mm. they would leave a couple of inches inside of extra fabric so that let's say if you put on some weight or perhaps you lost some weight that the seam was adjustable and you could you know let in or let out the fabric and they also thought about maternity so once you become pregnant that you know there would be enough fabric to at least let's say get you through the first six seven months of that pregnancy and so there's a way in which these garments you know really were forgiving and understanding that we don't have to be our bodies don't have to be standardized you know there's a sort of disciplining of the body that comes in with this type of our current attitudes towards fashion as well where our body has to um, adapt 
to the shape that has been designated by the fashion industry sizes. Whereas here, yeah. there's a sense that actually the fabric or the material has to adapt to our body. And it's, a, it's just a very different way of thinking about things. I, I was also thinking about my mother talking about, and, and, and this is not just my mom, my cousins too, who are very, very attuned to fashion trends in, in India in the last like two, three decades where, you know, every few months, it's like the length of sleeve that is considered fashionable changes. So sometimes a quarter length, sometimes half, sometimes three quarters length, yeah. and they would take their clothes and they would, they would uh, turn them in you know, and they would change the length of the sleeves, they would add beads when beads were in fashion, they would mm -hmm. add embroidery when that was in fashion, or they would go and get another scarf and get it dyed to a different color, depending on what color was fashion, they would change the lengths of their shirt, you know, so yeah. there were so many ways in which there was such a long term relationship with an article of clothing, and you kind of felt that you wanted to get the most out of it, and that there were there was a way no matter what the fashion was. And, and I think I bring this example forward because, you know, I think it's, it's okay to have seasons and it's okay for there to be some sort of healthy attitude towards consumption of fashionable trends. I think the answer is not for us to be devoid of any artistic relationship to the, the clothes that we put on our body, but it's how we think of that relationship as being adaptive and constantly evolving with our bodies and with, with the moment that we're living in. You know, I, I'm not trying to put forward some sort of nostalgic reading of these earlier practices, but I think there is something that clearly we can learn about the ways in which, you know, our own family members uh, used to approach these clothes. And perhaps there's a way to integrate some of that even into the more industrialized landscape of clothes making. And as for, you know, your grandma or my mother and my grandma, I think their attitudes towards those articles of clothing were also actually forged not out of a commitment to sustainability per se, but it was there was also an economy of the household that they were considering, right? Fabric, yeah. materials were expensive. And so you didn't just discard them. So there is this a sense of our changing relationships to ideas of price and value and worth and what we perceive as being valuable in a particular moment. You know, honestly, I really, really appreciate and I paused at your use of the word forgiving when you yeah. were describing this, you know, the system of sort of taking in and kind of, you know, kind of expanding and maybe then taking in different garments, because really that word forgiving, I think it really reflects that specific practice that you were describing but it really also describes so much more about the system and the sort of pre-manufactured you know in specific sizes and specific styles that we kind of receive everywhere whereas it is really the opposite of a sort of built up from the different communities that we are in and as you very well use that word those communities had forgiveness and they had flexibility and they had leeway built into them and I think you were absolutely you hit the nail on the head when you kind of were wondering if this is just a nostalgia or if this is really also possibly a future direction because you know within design for sustainability studies and now this is a little bit more zoomed out than fashion this is really design for sustainability theory one of the most aspirational innovation levels that is currently very much discussed in academic discourse and by design practitioners is this idea of creating 
product service systems. And it's this idea of creating a product and that has all of these services around it. So the best example is to think about a car, for example, and the, and the fact that a lot of us buy cars with this idea that we are going to maintain and service them over time. But that's not how we think about our clothing. And a lot of this product service system innovation level within design tries to create services around a product to extend its lifetime or to kind of, you know, really disrupt, as they use that word, modes of using things already. And as you mentioned with this example of taking something in and out, that is an example of a product service system that is status quo. Although when you look at the Western literature, this is described as innovation. And I ran into the same kind of very beautiful tension when I was doing research in Bahrain and I had you know, I, I went in with these frameworks and I was talking to different tailors and makers and designers. And one of them told me that she basically has a host of clients that have children. And as the children grow older, she she makes the clothing a little bit bigger for them as much as is possible, you know, before perhaps it becomes too difficult to stretch a garment in that in that many ways but she does this for them over time for a very simple fee and as you mentioned you know they prefer it because it's also the economic decision they no longer have to buy the fabric again it's a very minimal fee of just you know expanding something um, or making it bigger or putting the hem down and i was there looking at all this western literature that told me this is innovation and you know this really begs into question how do we define our own innovations then if if this is for us status quo? And, and I'm not trying to paint again this rosy picture because there's a lot that happens that is in no any which way sustainable or isn't really considered, you know, the sort of beacon of sustainability standards. But I think it's important to also acknowledge that our status quos and our starting points are different. And these values can really inform whatever sustainability values that or principles that we are going to build our future systems and societies with as well. It's, it's really important to kind of struggle with that tension as well. But yeah, I, I just really, really appreciated these examples that you shared. Towards the end of our interview, I want to kind of move the conversation to another space. I want to ask you about your own work as a designer. So we've spoken about these larger trends, you know, the issues of um, affordability, um, of planned obsolescence in these garments, about the life cycle of these garments. How do you as a fashion designer try to address these questions of, let's say, emotional attachment or perceived worth or longevity of a garment? Is there a way in which you try to forge a different relationship with the consumer when you're, you know, selling them a piece of clothing or when you're designing a piece of clothing with them in mind, you know, what goes through your mind? What are the questions you're asking? How are you approaching this? I think this is really important because as we've, we've sort of discussed several times by now, it is, it is vastly unfair to place that burden on the consumer especially since materialism has been tied psychologically to these feelings of insecurity. Um, so Tim Kasser, you know, he, he studies materialism and in a book that he has called The High Price of Materialism, he says that, for example, materialistic teenagers usually have parents who are actively unlikely to listen to their perspectives or acknowledge their feelings or provide them with choices. 
Um, it's quite interesting. I mean, they their parents tend to use more harsh or punitive measures for misbehavior. And sometimes they even display these inconsistencies in how these rules are applied. So, you know, so how is this related to, you know, specifically to kind of fashion sustainability or materialism? But imagine extrapolating this example of the family or parents to society, especially paternalistic societies, especially, you know, societies in the Gulf, which definitely reinforce consumerism. So, you know, perhaps in paternalistic societies where you have a lot of authoritarian governance as well, materialism becomes a way to be seen, to be heard, to express oneself, um, to attempt to achieve some sort of psychological security. So, you know, I, I say this just to underscore that completely, I don't think that this burden should be placed on the consumer. But now how do we fix this from on a systems level from a designer's perspective as you asked. Um, I'm going to answer this first from a designer's perspective. I try to create pieces that are quite dramatic to be honest and these are pieces that are not just ephemeral trend but rather could be wearable over time with a bit of a studied twist or a silhouette and of course this is all subject to the whims of trend and fashion but I, I truly believe that fostering this relationship between a person and a garment and the process of dress itself, and these, this is when I say study twists, I like to incorporate things that when you're getting dressed, when you're wearing something, you are maybe hyper aware that there's something about this piece that is different. Um, I have a, a specific sort of over overcoat piece or it's a light jacket where it has a really rounded panel across the chest and instead of the usual more rectangular panels that you have in double-breasted or you know even sort of a single uh, a simple blazer um, but this really rounded panel it makes you a lot more aware that you're buttoning up um, your jacket and so for me this idea of really engaging with the person as they dress with the wearer I think it, it can be really revolutionary I think for somebody to dress for them for the act of dressing up and to really choose these pieces that I, I consider to be quite dramatic. And again, I, I acknowledge that these wouldn't be everyday pieces and they're not really basics, um, but this is really the kind of thinking behind it that I really think forms this emotional attachment with the wearer. Now, from a research perspective, I, I use this method in research, which is quite simple. Um, it's called visioning and it's borrowed from the field of transition design. And it's really, you know, simply explained by asking people that you are interviewing or you are working with, often it's with a panel or with a group of people, you ask them to imagine futures in a way that has no barriers. So this is quite liberating. Think about it. It's asking somebody that lives in the Gulf, for example, asking them this question saying, come now, imagine a future with me where equity social and environmental ethical problems take precedence over all else. So sometimes just giving someone the power to envision without limitations, I think that can be a really radical and transformative thing. Thank you, Rowan. I think that's a really beautiful note on which to end this interview. It has become increasingly difficult for us to imagine and politically advocate for systems change if people simply do not think that it is feasible and it's not within the range of possibilities. So I think that 
honestly, that lack of um, political imagination, social imagination, aesthetic imagination um, is really holding us back. And I'm, I'm so grateful that there are fashion designers and engineers and theorists like you in the world who are really taking this, this on. And I hope that one day I can be, uh, be seen strolling a, a shopping mall or a city street in a Rowan Maki original <laughs> and uh, a piece of garment that I hope to have a long standing relationship with. So thank you. Thank um, you. <laughs> Rowan Maki is an environmental engineer, fashion designer, and PhD candidate in sustainability and design at the London College of Fashion. For more information about her work, please visit rowanmaki.com. We also welcome your ideas. If you have ideas about programming or you want to contribute to the Jadalia Environment page, please email us at environment at Thank you for listening and until next time. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.